we're delighted uh, to have Dave from West Franklin uh, teaching us again tonight. And so, Dave, I'll turn it over to you, and I'll leave you guys and have a great evening. All right. See you, Roger. All right, everybody, show of hands. Who's tired? Who is like, I'd like to be other places than here right now? Or I really need some strong caffeine. Someone just, <laughs> Teresa, someone just threw their hands up <laughs> behind you. That's good. Uh, hey, so as always, uh, last time I was with y'all, it was very uh, lecture-ish. I'm going to try to avoid as much of that tonight. Um, so if you need uh, pen and paper, I'll encourage you to grab that because I'm going to ask a lot of questions and I may call on you to tell me how you answered that. Fair? Doesn't matter. That's how I'm going to do it. So uh, who does not have their Christmas tree up yet? Does anyone not have a Christmas, Kirsten? I'm not surprised. Actually, I am surprised. Okay. Um, we're going to have a little festivity tonight. There we go. A little Christmas hat for everybody. Okay. So we're going to have some fun. It's going to be great. The hat's going to go away eventually, but I told my student minister I'd put this on for you all tonight just to try and make the uh, night a little more interesting and fun. Great, let's, let's open up with a word of prayer. God, you are good to us. Thank you for the men and women who are here who uh, have a desire to just learn about you, about what it means to be a part of the church, about what it means to be a follower of you. Uh, and I pray that you would just honor and bless their efforts. Um, Lord, this time of year, it can get a little crazier, maybe slowed down because of COVID and other things, but it's still it's still just one of those seasons where there's a lot happening, a lot wrapping up, and I pray that you would just bless them with your presence. So we thank you for this time. We thank you for uh, the church. May we explore what it means to be the church. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, the hat's going away. Good job. All right, got your pen and paper? We all ready? Here we go. You are out and about at your favorite coffee shop, your favorite whatever. You engage someone that you do not know. And in the course, it comes up that you are a Christian. And they ask you, what is the church? How are you answering that? Take a few seconds, write your, your bullet points down, and uh, I'll call on you uh, as, as I see fit to answer that question. I'll give you 60 seconds. Go. Twenty seconds left. Ten seconds. Nine eight seven six five four three two one. All right. Who do I pick? I'm not allowed to pick Kirsten because she'll feel like I'm calling on her just because she goes to our church campus. So I won't start with her. Kirsten, your 
Thank you, Ryan, for letting me know that. I will keep that in mind as I call on people. So um, Kelly P in my lower left corner, how would you answer that? And if you don't want to answer my question, that's fine. You just you just wave me off and be like, no, but that's cool. I want to hear what you guys think. So um, I said uh, it's a body of believers um, that come into the church for ministry, fellowship, discipleship, evangelism, and mission. And then I would expand on each of those with, you know, ministry for teaching, fellowship for support, discipleship for growing in their faith, evangelism for being um, on mission to, uh, you know, assist new believers, and um, mission base uh, for helping those in, you know, with various needs. Cool. All right. I heard a lot of good things in that. So I appreciate the, uh, the launching point. Would anyone like to offer theirs up? Sure. Let's hear it, Cassandra. I said <clears throat> a collection of believers or followers of Jesus who make up his body with him as a head. Specifically, the choice of the word body is used because we are one just as a body is one and not a collection of individual parts. We are living, so not an inanimate object. So we're alive and we function as something that, that has life in it. Um, we all have different functions, just as every piece of a body has different functions. However, we are all interdependent on one another and our functions individually. And just like a body, we are in need of a head direct us and lead us okay i like it not very reformed but that's okay that's okay <laughs> there is there is room at the table for lots of different uh viewpoints i appreciate that anyone else want to honor or not honor add theirs I think I just kind of looked at it as, um, and maybe I think probably because it was brought up in our last class that how there's there's church with the capital C, which is worldwide believers, mm -hmm. and then, um, there's church community of people that come together, um, but not all are believers. So right. that's all I had. yeah, and we're going to talk about that. Okay. So I didn't realize that was brought up in your last class. That's good. If we get into it and y'all are like, hey, we've already had this, you just tell me and I'll pivot and move on and uh, we'll go from there. All right. So, so the definitions that were offered, uh, I, I think, are solid. Um, here's what I wrote down. I stole people's definitions because there's people much smarter than me out there and uh, I, I wanted to go with that. So you're the guy who wrote your chapter for tonight, chapter 10, hopefully you read that. Um, you know, it is, uh, uh, Trier is his last name. He says it's a community of people who respond when the Holy Spirit calls them to gather as followers of Jesus Christ. And then Wayne Grudem, one of, uh, the guys that I turn to a lot for just a systematic theology, simply defines it as church is the community of all true believers for all time. And so, so at the heart of it, the church is the believers, uh, and, and Teresa kind of hits on that, that, hey, there's this universal church, but there's also then a local context where some of the other definitions 
uh, touched on that, and it's uh, under the, the headship, the leadership of uh, Jesus Christ. And so now that can get a bit interesting because Jesus isn't physically here for, to direct us, but we do have the Holy Spirit that does that for us. Um, when we get into the conversation of what is the church, uh, we start getting into a, a area of theology called ecclesiology. Big word. Don't expect you to write it down or memorize it. Um, if you want to, you're welcome to. Don't recommend you getting it tattooed on your body. It's kind of long and hard to spell. But ecclesiology is basically uh, the study of the church. And so that's what we're doing tonight. We're going we're gonna to look at some ecclesiology. And when we look at ecclesiology uh, and what is the church, we can look at it from a large number of perspectives that we don't have time for for all of it tonight. So just hear me say, we're hitting some high-level looks. Uh, and, and the way different people, different denominations do church, I don't understand all of them. I haven't been Catholic. I haven't been Anglican. So if you ask me, well, why do they do it that way? I'm going to look at you and go, I don't know. That's just how they do things sometimes. Uh, if I can answer, I will, though. Uh, so when we talk about ecclesiology, uh, we have to consider what are the purposes of the church? Uh, what are the rituals of the church? What's the government of the church? What's the role of the members in relationship to the church? And so ecclesiology has a lot of uh, depth to it. And I think it's something most believers, most followers of Christ, don't take any time to really think hard on. They simply go, I go to church, I'm good. Maybe every once in a while they'll question, well, why do we do it that way? But I and but usually it's when they're upset and not when things are going great in their world. Um, so let's uh, let's jump into it. The church is all true believers through all time. I, that we're going to run with that as our thought. So uh, I'm going to give you some attributes. I'm not going to define them at all. I'm going to let you try to tell me what they mean, and uh, then we'll have some fun conversation. All right. So the first thing is the church is both invisible and visible. It is invisible and visible. Kirsten, I'm picking on you. You ready? What does that, what does it mean for the church to be invisible? You got to unmute that mic. Unless Currently, I have no idea. That's good. That, that is a <laughs> totally acceptable answer. I'm, going I'm with that. so sorry. <laughs> no. Listen, that is fine. That is fine. Adam, any thoughts what it, what it means for the church to be invisible? No, that's fair. That's fair. All right. So uh, some of it goes into what Teresa brought up just a little bit ago, but the invisible church is how God sees the church. We as humanity, as humans, we look at each other based on what we can see, the outward appearance, how people present themselves. But only God can truly see the inner part um, of, of a person. And so only he truly knows if a person is a follower of Christ or not, and if they are a part of the church. And so when we talk about the invisible church, we're talking about how God views the church, how God sees the church. Uh, 1 Samuel 16, 7 talks about uh, man judges the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. Okay, so when we start talking about the church, what we have to understand 
uh, is the visible church, uh, is, is the local church what we see, the people that we see, the way that they present themselves. But God looks at the heart, and he truly knows. So I can look at all of you all. Uh, some of you don't have cameras on, and that's okay. But I can, I can still look at you based on how you present yourself and what you say. And I can say, well, yeah, the way they're talking, the way they're acting, the way they're responding, they're believers, they're followers of Christ. But maybe you've been in church long enough and you can uh, fake your way through it. You know the right things to say and the right ways to dress and the right songs to sing and the wrong places to stay away from and all of that fun stuff. Uh, but maybe in your heart, you haven't truly accepted Christ and, and submitted to his lordship. God knows that. So you have the visible side, which is what we see, how we interpret and understand one another. And then you have the invisible side, which is how God sees the church and the people who say they're a part of the church. Does that make sense? Okay, so you got visible and invisible. Uh, I think you guys talked about this last week. Then you've got uh, you've got local. Well, before we go to that, let me let me tag on to what Teresa was saying. Y'all help me understand last week. How much did you talk about um, people, the percentage or the thoughts of, of the church that the church is made up of a lot of folks who are probably deceiving themselves. Did y'all talk about that at all? Maybe they're really not followers of Jesus. It was two weeks ago. It was okay. Two weeks ago. Okay. That's cool. So I don't think we did. Okay. So let's, let's sit on that for just a brief second, because it's uncomfortable, but I think it's something that we have to understand that, uh, we live in the South. I don't know where everyone's from. Obviously, uh, we, we have a large representation of, of cultures and uh, people here. But if you've grown up in the South, if you've been in the South for any kind of time, you kind of know that, hey, there's this thing called cultural Christianity, uh, where people just go to church because, well, it's what we've always done or what's expected of us. And we're seeing the death of cultural Christianity, which I'm kind of celebrating. But like I look at my church and Kirsten, don't don't you go tell anybody this is what I'm about to say. But I think we have a large number of people sitting in our pews at the Church of West Franklin that are cultural Christians that have deceived themselves. They think they're followers of Christ, but really they're just going through the motions. Uh, Cassandra, you've got a question there. Are you clapping saying I totally agree with you? <laughs> I'm clapping. Okay, great. I'm not great with this whole icon thing. Sometimes I'm like, I don't know what that is. And I'm not wearing my glasses. So sometimes it's a little blurry. So <laughs> it's all good. Um, so, so just know that, hey, even at, Matt and I have this, this thought that our, our ministry is uh, to help people understand what it means to be followers of Christ, especially people who consider themselves Christians. Uh, and a lot of times it leads us to having hard conversations with folks going, you know, maybe you didn't have that conversion experience like you thought you did. Now, now it takes a while to get there. I'm not just going to walk up to Kirsten and be like, you're not saved. Get out of here. Um, but, you know, we're going to have a long, hard conversation about things. And so just know that our pews in the local church are filled with people that still need to hear the gospel. And so we need to be uh, cognizant of that, and we need to be willing to get uncomfortable uh, with the local church. Um, 
I've seen a lot of studies out there. there. There's no good way to measure that. I mean, God's the one who ultimately knows. But I've seen studies that say upwards of 80% of the church, people who are sitting in the pews, truly are not followers of Jesus. If that's the case, holy moly, we've got a lot of work to do. And we need to do a better job of uh, explaining the gospel to people rather than just, if you accept Jesus, great, let's dunk you and let's move on. So discipleship and helping walking through people. Yes, ma'am, Teresa. So I guess my I, my question is, it's it's the Holy Spirit that would. I mean, it, are you? Do you think that somebody decides and chooses, or is to me, it's the Holy Spirit that ultimately reveal that reveals, and then mm -hmm. you trust. You, does, yes. You know. Yeah. So are you asking me uh, in terms of my, from my position as I'm in talking and engaging people, or are we talk, are you asking from the position of someone who's saying I'm a follower of Jesus? Well, I guess it's, it's kind of, I mean, this, what you're saying is that there's no way of knowing only God knows the heart. And then now that as we're starting to talk, I remember that Cassandra, we did have a slight conversation about judging somebody by their fruits. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I just always go back, I guess, to my own personal experience. And um, because I think every story is important, you know, because it's God's story. It's part of God's story. So all our stories right. are very important. And, um, you know, so there's always, and I just feel like God is sovereign. And so he knows the timing. He knows when I'll surrender my heart. Right. And his spirit that opens my eyes and heart to finally see and not reject and understand. And maybe I'm off there. I don't no, know. I think, I think you're totally on. I think part of the challenge that we have with, with not everybody. So I don't want to make huge generalizations here, but there are a good number of people who believe they're saved simply because they, they made some ABC confession in DBS without truly coming to understand this is what it means. For Jesus to be my my savior, my Lord, my King, um, or folks who have just gone to church their whole life since you know they were born, and it's just part of who they are. But Jesus really isn't part of who they are. The motions of being a Christian are who they are. I understand that, but it's still the work of the Holy Spirit. Yes, yes, yeah. the Holy Spirit ultimately is the one who's going to move. And again, I am very careful. I'm not the judge. But if I have a long, long conversations with folks and come to realize you, you aren't showing the fruit, you have not grown in spiritual maturity since, you know, you accepted Christ, you, uh, you have little to no understanding of what it really means to, to follow Christ. And I'm not talking someone who's been following Jesus for like six days. I'm talking someone who's been following him for a long time, supposedly following him. That's a hard conversation. And it's a sad, re sad realization when, when you realize you've lived your life thinking that you're probably saved and you may not be. And so, yes, sir, I see that hand there. Go ahead. Um, <clears throat> is there a differentiation between whether you have accepted Christ or you are going through the process of sanctification? in the process of slowly, slowly committing your whole life to Christ. In the sense that in the Bible, of course, it says, you know, uh, 
so you know, as long in Chinese, um, as long as you acknowledge in your mouth, mouth and your heart, I am translating the Chinese Bible here, uh, you are saved. Right. All those who believe, uh, you know, John three sixteen. Is there a difference between you accepting Christ and you are actually um, sanctifying your whole life in committing the whole process of sanctification that you are getting rid of old self and grow? So is there a differentiation or are we talking about true believer being the sanctified one or true believer being who genuinely accept Christ but struggle with their old self? Yeah, that's that's a great question. Um, as I think on this, I think it's it's more someone who it has not gone through any more sanctification. Hey, I made the profession. I said the right things when I was a child, but that's been it. Um, I know t I know tons of people who struggle with hey. I know I'm, I profess Christ. I know it was legit, but I still struggle with my sin nature. I still struggle with those things. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about someone who um, goes through the right motions and says and does the right things, but doesn't necessarily have that relationship, demonstrate that relationship uh, yeah, what if you don't have your chat up, what Cassandra just said, sanctification doesn't save, but saved people will become sanctified. You know, if you're truly saved, you you are going to move closer towards Christ. The Holy Spirit's going to move you that way. Um, and so that's that's what I usually am kind of going off of. I'm looking at that process. Are you in process or has the process never started because you truly didn't profess Christ? Uh, and in the South, Tennessee, Mississippi, Georgia, Alabama, you might throw Arkansas in there. I struggle to go much further uh, on that direction. It's so cultural to go to church and just be a part of it. And I think especially in this, this area, the Bible Belt, there's a lot of people who just kind of said the right, said something when they were younger and think they're okay and they've, they've kind of diluted themselves because there has been no growth. Kelly P., I see your hand there. Yeah, yeah I was going to say, um, you know, as for myself, my whole family is actually newer believers. I was saved only seven years ago, and then one by one, my, our family of six. And we came from a very, very um, large church out on the West Coast. And I have to say, you know, I don't want to put the total blame on the church, you know, the, as your own church, but I've seen it time and time again, like especially in the evangelical churches where it's all about the numbers and it's all about getting people in, getting them to accept Christ. It's like, check the box. And then they're forgotten about. And for yeah. myself, I was, I, I was raised until 10 as a um, congregational Protestant. And so I didn't know hardly anything. And in that larger church, I had pretty much nobody come alongside me and disciple me and really, you know, like force me almost into a life group. And that's why I love, you know, when we came out here and we found we belong to church at Nolansville. Um, I'm actually the, the discover coordinator for Nolansville campus. And I just love right. the discover process. And I think it's so crucial that we don't forget about those new members and come alongside them and make sure that because if they are just praying that, you know, if there's an altar call at service and they pray the prayer and they think they're saved, 
it's only going to be through life groups and through serving and through all of these other um, situations with that additional fellowship that they're starting to realize like how is God moving in their life? What are their gifts? What should they be on mission for? That then that sanctification process continues and they really grow in their faith and understand what it means to be a true believer. Yeah. Yes, sir. I see that hand going up. So the moment we accept Christ mm -hmm. and his salvation, we're saved. Or yes. the moment that we are sanctified, we're saved. The moment we accept Christ legitly, we're saved. And then the process of sanctification begins. Sanctification is evidence that on the day of your salvation, it was a true faith. It was a true belief in that moment. So the sanctification confirms what happened on that day that you believed. If that sanctification never happened, then you can doubt whether that conversion on that day was truly genuine. But any genuine conversion will always result in sanctification at the end. But, um, but it is what, what, uh, what Dave, you just said, it is God who truly know. Yes. And, yeah. you know, some, yeah. Um, okay. And, and, um, and can I, yeah. I, so I think, um, on what there's a few things going on here that I think we need to separate. Uh, what Wilek I think is asking is the three levels of sanctification, right? Because we got positional sanctification, that's when you accept Christ on the day that you accept the confession as Lord. And I'm saying as Lord and Savior, not just as a Savior, because a lot of people accept him as a Savior, but not as Lord. So the Lordship needs to be be evident in people's life and that's called positional sanctification and then we got progressive sanctification that that means as you walk with Christ you are being led by the Holy Spirit and the old self is being renewed into the new self and then we have perfected sanctification that is when we actually die and be uh, at the feet of Jesus and we will be perfected glorified state Ah. But what Wilek is, uh, uh, you, what you are asking is what is, that there's two things. It's positional sanctification, that is when you accept Christ, and that happens instantly. And then you have progressive sanctification, which is you walk with the Holy Spirit as you are being renewed and sanctified, your old self and die. So yeah. that is a walk that happens through your life until your death, and then you're, you're fully sanctified. Yeah. And then as a matter of fact, and the other area about the Holy Spirit, uh, is the one that the invisible church, that's what we're looking at, is that it's the body of believers, dead and alive, right? Because the dead is the, the body is dead, but not the spirit, and the spirit is with God. So when we worship, we actually join those believers in worship, and that's what the book of Hebrews chapter 10 tells us. But anyways, I think that what we need to think is that the Holy Spirit is in charge of regeneration and the ones that make sure that those believers are true believers, right? What I'm trying to say is that I see a lot of emphasis on people saying that one needs to do something, but there's nothing we can do because we're saved by grace, right? But then as we 
walk with Christ and we make him Lord. If you see somebody not making Christ Lord, then he's not a believer. He just makes a false confession of faith. So there's different things going on here, I think, in this topic. We need to separate them. What we're talking about sanctification, when we're talking about, uh, you know, who is a believer, who makes Christ the Lord. Yeah, and so let me jump in back in here because I, we, we've gone way off where I thought we were going to go here. What I really want y'all to hear me say is don't just assume because someone is stepping through the doors on a regular basis and sitting in the pew that they know who Jesus is. That's what I want us to, to really em- embrace. We need to be willing to ask the hard conversations or ask the hard questions of tell me about that faith journey, that faith relationship you have with Christ. We're not the judge. I'm trusting the Holy Spirit is, is working in them and even in me and through me to either help them move closer to Christ or to understand simply showing up to church doesn't save you. And my, I, I hope no one in here knows my parents. You might. I'm not going to tell you who they are, but my last name will give it some of it away uh, if you ever meet them, last name. Uh, my parents go to church. I am 98% church, sure my parents are lost because they equate going to church as salvation. And that that's, they're not a part of the church. They're a part, they attend a local congregation, but they're lost as billy goats. I hope I'm wrong. One, one last question on yes, this sir. salvation. Uh, I just want to run it by you to see if this is the right way to do this. Usually when I approach someone that I mm-hmm. feel that I need to verify, I will ask them, this simple question, which is offensive question. If you and I were to be hit by meteorite right now, hit by COVID and we all die, right. how many percent are you sure you're going to heaven? Right. Just um, usually how I ask, and then if they say 98% or 100%, I'll ask why. If their question, their answer is that, oh, because I go to church, because my parents are Southern Baptists, for whatever reason other than, you know, because the blood of Jesus Christ has wash away all my sin, yeah. then I kind of get an idea of where their faith come from. If they say anything other than, oh, I do good work, you know, or I serve yeah. in, yeah. So that's, that, I don't know if that's a good method, but just want to run it by you. I think, I think that's, that's a fair method to go about as long as it's not, hey, I'm going to try and scare you into heaven because you may <laughs> walk out of here and get run over by a meteorite. So yes, ma'am, Teresa. I, the word accept drives me crazy. Uh-huh. I feel like when you accept something, that doesn't necessarily mean you've opened the gift. If you, right. You know, and so I guess I've always looked at it as it's a trust issue. Either we trust what God said is true, and we trust He did what He did, and then we grow in that trust. But the word accept just drives me nuts because. Uh-huh. It's like, yeah. like I did something going back, but we did nothing. So to me, I think even that, it's all a trust issue. Yeah. And uh, grow in that trust. Just, just to explain why I use the word uh, accept, because usually... Excuse oh, it, I'm sorry. It wasn't towards you. For, oh, no, no, I understand. But well, the way I look at it is salvation is a gift. It's a gift from God to us. We need to accept that gift so that we have salvation. If we don't accept the gift, it's not ours. Yeah. And, and let's, let's go back to the church here. 
This is a great conversation. I love this. I'm all about this. I'm so going to just email Roger later and be like, dude, we so went off the rails where we were supposed to go. I love it. So, um, but uh, he's also uh, expecting me to get y'all to a certain place in the conversation tonight. So uh, I don't want him to come back and throw tomatoes at me if I can help it. All right. So listen, I love this conversation. Let me just affirm again, we're simply, I want us to make sure we understand there's folks in our pews that we need to be ministering to just as hard as we are to the folks outside of the pews um, and, and making sure they understand who Jesus is and, and all of that. So we do that in love. All right, back to the church, visible, invisible, local and universal or Catholic. However you want to, I like the word universal, just because when you say the word Catholic, you immediately jump to the Catholic church, uh, the, the Roman Catholic church and all of that. But so we've got the local church, which is, you know, I just lost all my notes. Where'd they go? There it is. It's the uh, individual, I define it this way. Local churches are individual churches in a community, the various denominations, et cetera, that are found in a geographic area. Okay. Uh, the, the way that they worship, that they govern themselves, uh, and much more can be different from congregation to congregation and community to community. So we're a Southern Baptist uh, uh, church. Brentwood Baptist is, all of our campuses are. The way we worship, the way we do things looks a lot different than the last church I was at, which is only an hour and a half away. I go to my parents' church, which is a Lutheran church, and holy moly, it looks a whole lot different than what it does in the in the Southern Baptist Church. Uh, Kelly, I'm sure if we were to pick your brain, we'd find that the church you were out on the West Coast does things even totally different than Brentwood does. So when we talk about the local church, we're just talking about uh, individual churches or a denomination that's within a geographic area. And sometimes that geographic area can be fairly large. So you like the Methodist church. Well, it's across the whole globe. And they have similar characteristics, but even their, their uh, local congregations are going to have different flavors of how they do ministry and how they worship based on where they're located. Uh, a church in uh, a Methodist church in Africa is going to, to definitely worship a whole lot different than a Methodist church here in Nashville. Um, but they're still worshiping the same God. So just, just know that there's the local church, different flavors, different ways of doing things. And then there's the universal church and the universal church or the Catholic church that refers to all true churches throughout all time. Okay. And so uh, it's not, it's not uh, dependent on a denomination, but instead shares the identifying marks of the church, which leads me into my next question. What are the identifying marks of a church? So if you come upon a gathering of people and they tell you, we are a church, what are you looking for to really be like, yes, I agree you're a church. And I'm thinking really big picture stuff here. I'm not talking like they got to use real wine and, and fake bread or whatever. I'm talking real big picture, high level marks here. What do y'all think? And I'll, I'll crucifix. Say again? A crucifix. So they have to use the crucifix, okay? The cross. Yes. So so maybe, but probably not. Think even bigger. 
preach from the Bible? Bingo, there's one. Exactly, the Bible. So, so we call that the word, that scripture is being rightly preached and taught. The Lord did uh, common faith, which to me would include doctrinal beliefs, which come from the Bible, corporate okay. worship, and community and discipleship. Okay. I understand where you're coming from. Let me go ahead and quit right, the yeah. uh, guessing game. It's the, it's, the, uh, it's the sacraments or the ordinances. So what are those things that they are doing that we can see scripturally are marks or identifiers of the church? Now, there are two kind of camps within this. You've got the high church camp uh, view, which you'll find the Catholic church falls within there. Uh, and so their sacraments, let me give them to you just so you can, if you ever encounter someone and they start talking about these things. Uh, the Catholic church, they affirm confirmation, the Eucharist, which we call the Lord's Supper, uh, baptism, penance, anointing of the sick, holy orders, and matrimony. Okay, you may not know what all those are. Let me just walk through the ones that you may not. Uh, Eucharist is Lord's Supper. You know what Baptist uh, or baptism is. We're Baptist. That's a nice typo in my notes right there. Um, penance, which is basically confession to the priest. Uh, anointing of the sick. It can be extreme unction as someone is dying, but it can also be, hey, the priest simply goes and prays for someone to heal for the purpose of them coming to a saving faith. Uh, the holy orders is the ordination of priest, and then matrimony, which is marriage. That's that's kind of the high church view. We, as Southern Baptists, uh, we get to call ourselves the low church. There's nothing wrong with that. But just know that uh, most of the Protestant churches hold the two ordinances, uh, baptism and the Lord's Supper, as the marks. If I want to determine if a group is truly a church, are they baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and are they taking the Lord's Supper in remembrance of what Christ has done through and on the cross? We can debate all day long about the other ones. We're not going to for the sake of time. Just know that different denominations, uh, they kind of play out different ordinances, and so if you have a, a high church, which I would say uh, Eastern Orthodox, Catholic, uh, maybe some Anglican, uh, an Episcopalian within there, um, they're going to have more that they hold to and say, these are the things that a true church is going to do. Whereas a low, a low church, uh, Baptist, Church of Christ, um, I'm trying to think of some other ones, uh, Presbyterians, some others within there. They're going to hold the more of just, hey, we've got two ordinances, baptism, Lord's Supper. And those are the marks that we look for, for uh, saying this is truly a church. There are a lot of great organizations out there that don't do these things. They're still, they're still doing the work of God and growing the kingdom, but they're not necessarily a church. So a lot of parachurch organizations are out there. Uh, I come from student ministry world like Young Life and FCA and uh, Campus Crusade for Christ, uh, some of those. They're not doing the Lord's Supper and they're not doing baptism. Therefore, I would not consider them a church. Does that make sense? I'm hoping so. I'm not seeing anyone with a huge confused look other than me. So we're good. All right. Um, moving on. All right. 
feel like I'm overlooking something here. Church. Hey, Dave, Ryan. this is Ryan. Can you hear me yes. okay? I hear you just fine. Sorry, I'm traveling to a meeting. Um, <clears throat> so is, is there any is there any any rhyme or rhythm behind how regular the, the Lord's Supper should be offered to a congregation? I mean, I know certain <laughs> denominations do it weekly. Others do it monthly. Others do it quarterly. There is, there is no scriptural rhyme or reason uh, that I can come across. And so I grew up in a, in a church that, man, we did it every week. Um, and now looking back, I see great value to that. At the time, though, I was just going through the motions. Uh, now I'm part of a, a campus that, I mean, we do Lord's Supper, I think, about eight or nine times a year. Uh, so, you know, not every month, but at least once a month, pretty close. Um, and I get where why they do that. So it doesn't say, so, you know, it's kept before you, but it's not like constantly and it just be, kind of becomes this rhythm and routine. Right. I think the best way to, to answer that is a lot of it depends on the liturgy of the church and their rhythms of worship. And so I don't look at a church that does it every week as someone that's um, doing it wrong. Uh, you know, if you're only doing it once a year, I might kind of question, aren't we supposed to remember a little bit more than that? Um, but I, I haven't found anything that said, man, it has to be this often or else you're missing the mark. Does that help? Okay. Yeah, that, that, that helps. I think <clears throat> I went to a, a Church of Christ private school growing up and obviously most church churches of christ are weekly mm -hmm. uh, take the lord's supper weekly and i mean i i think the belief is it really it really brings your center of gravity back to neutral um and i get that um it really and it it grounds you and just like it's supposed to do it helps you remember why you're doing everything you're doing yeah i mean i agree uh, granted when i was a teenager i didn't see it that way but anytime you can take the lord's supper and do it with the right intent of i'm doing this to remember what christ has done uh, as long as we're not attaching some kind of you know belief that hey this is part of your salvation process or anything like that then yeah, as long as it's a remembrance and it helps you remember who God is, what he has done through Jesus on the cross, and how I respond to that, then I, I think the more you can do it, the better. Um, you know, I also, yeah, anyway, I won't make that comment. Never mind. So. Well, part of it depends on how good the uh, the bread is, too. So, Bingo. I was kind of going that way. Yeah. I mean, the, I'll just say it. The COVID, uh, the COVID materials aren't quite as good as the non-COVID materials. I don't know what y'all are doing at West Franklin. Oh, no, we, we've got um, like styrofoam wafers and yeah. really bad Kool-Aid. So, um, yeah. Anyway, got us so, off topic. I'm sorry. No, it's okay, man. Listen, growing up Lutheran, they, they did it right, man. It was, it was delicious bread every Sunday. And uh, I would be on it. I'd be lying if I didn't tell you that after services, all the teenagers would run to the communion room to eat the leftovers. So it was great. It was great because we were hungry. All right, let's move on. Let's talk some fun here. You ready? Uh, church polity or the governing of the church. 
How does the church lead itself? What does this look like? Oh boy, it can get crazy. So we're going to hit high level on this. Kirsten, you ready for this? Yes, she's like, I have no clue where we're going. This is great. So um, there are four major forms of church polity. Okay, now when I say polity, what I'm talking about is how does the church lead itself? Who, how do they decide who's in charge? How do they make decisions? Uh, and so this is, this is kind of the hierarchy of how the church leads itself. Okay, and so when we get into this, there's four major forms of church polity. Let's walk through them. The first form is the Episcopalian polity. Now, this is not necessarily based on the Episcopal church, but instead it is more about how they, how it's governed. And so in the Episcopal polity uh, model, it's governed by bishops who meet in councils and synods. And bishops are presided over by higher ranking officials. So examples of churches or denominations that, that use this form of government, the Catholic Church. You got bishops who have cardinals over them, who have the pope over them. So it's a hierarchical system. Um, other, other denominations, you can argue about some of these. I've tried to really weed out the, the far outside cult-like ones, but like the Eastern Orthodox Church uses this, this uh, form. Um, some Anglican churches or most Anglican churches, and you can find some Methodist and some Lutheran churches that are using this. Um, so that's your first form. It's one that you can find throughout history, especially with the formation of the Roman Catholic Church. All right, so uh, very, very easy to understand and study this form of uh, polity. The second one, very similar uh, to the Episcopalian, but it's called the hierarchical polity. Similar to, to the last one, but it's more complex in its hierarchy. There's more levels of leadership that kind of gets confusing and uh, kind of muddies the water for who's really in charge. And as, I, as I've read on this, and I haven't spent a lot of time reading on this one, what I have found that a lot of the organizations that use the hierarchical polity uh, model, uh, what they're really, when, when you look at who they are, I wouldn't call them Christians. Uh, you've got the Mormons in there. Uh, you've got the Jehovah's Witnesses in there. And we can argue all day long. I don't put them in the Christian camp, but the Seventh-day Adventists are in there. Um, and so these are, these are organizations that kind of add a lot more layers to the mix of, of leadership I, I don't really see that happening in a, in a church that I would call a Christian church. All right. All right. I'm going to butcher how to say this next one. And I apologize for this. Connectional. I don't, that sounds weird to my tongue, but connectional polity. This is a loose Episcopalian hierarchy with a bottom up structure. So rather than it coming down from the Pope and going to the churches, it's the churches speaking from the bottom up. To their leadership of this is the direction we want to go now you guys make sure it's it's covered and make happen uh, a lot of methodist churches um are this so you think about it uh was it last year 2018 uh the methodist congregation the methodist denomination just had a worldwide vote about were they going to affirm homosexuality and it was, it was a bottom-up uh, voting system. It was the local congregations across the world telling 
the upper level leadership, this is what we're holding to. This is how we're going to approach this. It wasn't a top-down approach of, well, this is what we believe. Now you congregations go figure out how to live it out. Does that make sense? So hierarchical is top down, connectional is bottom up. And then uh, we get into, I said four major forms. I'm actually giving you five. I don't consider the hierarchical one of for Christianity. Uh, the Presbyterian polity. Anyone wanna guess what denomination that might be? Yes, that's right, Methodist. Uh, no, Presbyterian. So here we go. Uh, so this is a hierarchy of councils which govern a growing number of congregations. So you start with one congregation, which is called a session, and the leadership then goes, hey, I've got one church I'm leading, and then it takes a step up into a larger council, which is several sessions together, and then another step up, which is into like, eventually you get into like a synod or a general assembly. So I, I like to think of it as kind of little pockets of, of leadership, that keeps growing up into whatever they need in terms of the number of levels of hierarchy. Um, uh, each, each session, each council is expected to use their own judgment and lead the areas that they have responsibility over. And the higher levels, when you get into the synods and the general assemblies, they're meant to act as kind of a court of appeals for church discipline and disputes. So again, the local body is making decisions. And as, if there's dispute or anything like that, then that moves up to the higher levels for them to make judgment for lack of better terms. So uh, Kirsten and I go to the same church. Uh, she and I have a disagreement. Our local leadership rules in Kirsten's favor and says, hey, she's in the right, Dave's in the wrong. I don't like that decision. I'm going to take it to the next level of leadership. And they're going to say, no, Dave's right. Kirsten's wrong. And she's going to be like, I don't agree. Let's take it to the next level. of it's kind of, In my mind, you think about it kind of like the local courts. You know, you can appeal up so many layers and eventually you hit the Supreme Court and they're like, you can't go any higher than right here. Um, and so just, just keep in mind in the Presbyterian polity, it's, it's local leadership. It's just moving up when there's disputes or confusion or there needs to be clarification on things. Is all this making sense so far? I hope so, because I got confused sometimes reading about it. And so uh, last one I want to talk about is congregational polity. That is what we are. Southern Baptists are our congregational leadership. Uh, and so what this is, is the local congregation rules itself. They elect their own leaders. They ordain their own ministers. Uh, they, they set their own agendas for ministry, um, and they are not bound to one another, except in the moments that they choose uh, to cooperate with one another. And so you've got Baptists, which are in there. You've got non-denominational uh, churches. I guess you can't really say non-denominational denominations. Uh, I believe Church of Christ falls within there. Uh, just folks that are like, hey, we don't have a governing body. There's no one over us telling us what to do. So like Southern Baptist, we as Brentwood Baptist can make our own decisions and there's no higher authority that can tell us, nope, you can't do that. Um, we have chosen to be a part of the Southern Baptist Convention, meaning that we're cooperating with a, a larger number of, of churches for the good of missions and engaging people with the gospel. But we aren't required to do anything that the Southern Baptist Convention says needs to be done. 
Does that make sense? Every one of these has its pluses and its minuses. Um, you know, and, and even again, because of local congregations and how they all have their own flavors, it's going to play out a little differently, even when you get into some of the mainline denominations like, you know, Methodist who, who are for, kind of structured, but it's just going to play out different in every little community area. Comments or questions up to that point? Yes, sir. I see a hand. Need you to unmute your mic, please. There you go. Um, I, I I read through all this and I realize that this are, are this similar to how churches were in the New Testament or are they different? I, I would say they're different now. I mean, the, the New Testament churches uh, were really working under the, uh, it started out, I would say, kind of, well, the apostles were leading. And so, you know, they were the leadership. They were establishing the New Testament church. That's what we read about in the New Testament. When we get out of the New Testament era, uh, about three, oh, trying to go back to my church history, around 386, I believe, is when uh, Constantine made Christianity the official language. And that's when the Roman Catholic Church really took root. And you began to see that, um, uh, what is it, the Episcopal polity really take place and, and launch. But I'd say up until about 386 uh, BC, AD, sorry, AD, um, you didn't have a whole lot other than, hey, you, you kind of had church leadership, but it was more local. And uh, you would see, you know, when you read the New Testament, it was a lot of local leadership, and they would turn to the apostles when there was a disagreement or clarity was needed. What they did in between those two times, I'd have to go back and reread my uh, church history. So, based on your understanding, uh, if, if my understanding is correctly, God did not mandate uh, whatever type of church poly that is, or is that no. a certain, yeah. I mean, the Catholic Church will argue with you that he did when they said to, when Jesus said to Peter, upon you, I will build this church. You'll be, you'll be my, my rock upon which I built. The, the Catholic Church will say, well, no, that right there proves us. But I mean, the rest, a lot of these polities, like the Congregational, the Presbyterian, uh, oh, the Connectional, a lot of them didn't come out until the Protestant Reformation occurred. And I don't have that date right in front of my head, but that was 17, uh, you know, 15 something. So um, is that a certain poly that in the Bible we see that God is like, yes, this is how church should be or not really? I think, that's not what gets, that's not what God is concerned with. I, I think that's a great way to put it. That's not necessarily God's concern. I, I jokingly, I mean, the community I used to live in was heavily uh, Church of Christ, and um, I have a lot of great friends who are Church of Christ, but they can be a hair judgmental sometimes and say we are the only way. And uh, I, I jokingly say we're all going to get to heaven. Some of us are going to be really surprised by the number of different expressions of, of Christianity. Um, and I think God's going to look at every denomination, every way of leadership and go, you know, you got some things right and you got other things wrong. I don't see a perfect model existing right now. And so, uh, and, and I think that's one thing we have to keep in mind when we talk about the church. It's, it's still people who are in process of, of 
growing into what Christ has created in the be that process of sanctification that we talked about. And so the, the local church is going to have moments, and we can see it played out throughout history, but especially today in the media, you're going to have moments where the sinful nature, the, the defeated but still active sinful nature of church leadership is exposed. Yes, ma'am. Teresa. Do you think it, I'm thinking it was more community, um, like community villages probably. And, I, and the reason I say that is when I visit my family in Taiwan and they're Buddhist, mm -hmm. Um, every community town has a temple that they go to, and that's the Buddha that watches over their little community. So everybody that is in a certain community, that's where you go. And so I thought, this makes me think, it's hard not to look, even though we say church is not an organization, you know, it's hard not to look at it, especially after listening to everything you said, <laughs> to not look at it as it looks like an organization. When I think of church, um, I'm thinking it was more community, you know, the meeting in the homes and breaking exactly. bread together and being together and praying together. And then, um, can you, because I don't know, so I didn't, I don't understand the local universal Catholic, but then when you look at the high church view a lot of it that's written down is really everything that was in acts so now i'm just even more confused and that's what i wanted to do tonight was confuse all of you so mission accomplished that yay that's just what i want to know i i have to apologize for confusing everybody tonight my apologies on that i'm good at that so um yeah, I, let me just let me just go back and say I don't think there is a right way to to organize. Uh, there are wrong ways, but I don't know that there's the the one preferred way until we get up to heaven, and that's when the church universal is going to see. Oh, this is how it's supposed to be. Um, in the meantime, we do the best we can with uh, our understanding of what God calls us to. Um, and I grew up in a church that was hierarchical, uh, a Lutheran church that way. And I can see value to how they do it. I have embraced Southern Baptist as my denomination now. I see value in congregational. Um, and so I can look pretty much at all of them and go, I see value and I see why uh, churches led or organized or done this way. Um, and so just know that Again, like I said, I think we're going to get up to heaven one day and God's going to be like, yeah, you got this right, but you missed it there. And uh, now, welcome to heaven. Let's go Let's go enjoy being the church and uh, get on with what we're supposed to do. Let me give you two book recommendations. If you want to explore more on church polity and the different uh, uh, methods and models, uh, the first one is Perspectives on Church Government, Five Views of Church Polity. It is edited by Chad Brand. And the other book is a Wayne Grudem Systematic Theology, chapter 47 on church government. And hang on, I'm throwing this into the chat. Meeting, there you go. So it's in the church, it's in our chat now. You can see in case you didn't want to write those down. Um, man, it is seven o'clock. How did we get here so quickly? That is crazy. Uh, let me let me hit the last little thing. 
and then we'll take any questions or things that you guys want to talk through. When we consider what is the church about, we've talked about the marks and we've talked about government, but what is a church supposed to uh, be doing in terms of ministry? There's three really broad uh, categories I want us to embrace. Within that, there are tons of subcategories and every church is going to express them a little bit differently. So the first one is our ministry to God. Uh, and that's what we call worship. So when we come together as the local church, we should be looking to worship. We should be looking to minister to God, to sing his glory, to declare his, his praise. Um, and so now there might be moments we don't come together for that purpose, but that should be one of the major purposes of what we do. Uh, so hopefully that one makes sense. The second one, is ministry to believers. We have a responsibility uh, to, to engage one another in such a way that we uh, uh, nurture one another, that we care for one another, that we encourage and push and hold accountable uh, to one another. Um, and so, so ministry to believers. And then the last big bucket is ministry to the world. Uh, and this is mercy and evangelism. This is how we engage the world, uh, both local, but also, you know, far away with the gospel. And so, you know, sometimes we have to meet their needs before we can give them the, the truth of the gospel. Um, sometimes that happens as we're meeting needs, and sometimes we start with the gospel, and it moves us to an understanding of this is the need that needs to be met. So those are the three real big buckets. Um, you, you can argue some of that, I, I think, of, you know, well, where do things fall? But just realize, we're, as a church, we're to worship God, we're to push and, and walk and carry one another uh, as we move closer to Christ, and then we're to reach out to the world with the truth and the hope that we have found in Jesus Christ. And so that can, again, like I said, play out, look different, um, just based on the community and and how they express themselves as a church. There's so much more we could talk about, but I want to give you all time to ask some questions. Time's up. No, it's not. It's not. What questions do you guys have off of your reading or just, hey, you know, I, like Teresa said, I totally confused her. So, you know, how can I help clarify all that fun stuff? I noticed that we didn't speak much about uh, replacement theology versus sensational theology of the church point of view. Yep. Uh, is that something that we will not talk about? Or uh, here's what I will here's what I will encourage you with. I am probably not the best person to have that conversation with. It is not something that is my uh, strong suit. Uh, Paul Wilkinson would be the guy I would say, if you want to have a conversation about that, uh, he's, do y'all know Paul? Has he taught yeah. with y'all at TNT? Man, mm -hmm. that guy can talk that stuff so much better than I ever can. Um, so, you know, I will say, if you want to have that conversation, uh, let's, let's either get you hooked up with him one-on-one -on -one, or let's reach out to Roger and see if we might be able to set something up where, hey, everybody or a, a group that wants to have that conversation can have it. 
So that's me just being honest. I am I am not the best on having those that conversation. Thank you. Yes, sir. Sorry to disappoint you. No, no you're Better good. Disappoint it, you and further confuse you. So. In church discipline, you, we're going to talk about that too. Woo, we can. <laughs> no, <laughs> Teresa's like no. <laughs> we can so i wasn't sure if y'all wanted to go there or not um church discipline is one of those fun not fun topics because aren't we all supposed to get along and uh not fight and all of that but um there are moments where a believer or even a group of believers can do something that requires uh, a local congregation or denomination to respond and so what we have to figure out and determine is how do we go about uh, responding? Now, in some of the more hierarchical uh, denominations, they have it well spelled out. They have their processes. They have, they have it figured out. In congregational uh, polity, I've discovered most churches don't have it well, well laid out. They haven't really thought through and defined it. And so in those moments of, of uh, discipline, uh, you'll find that there's a lack of, of uh, consistency. And so what we have to do in, in the process of determining church discipline, what is the purpose of church discipline? And what is truly uh, worthy or needs to be disciplined? Because if we're not careful, we can become legalistic in that approach. And so we have to we have to really lean into what does scripture say? And then how do we approach that in terms of engaging the person who is uh, I don't know what the right word is, breaking the rules. Is that the right word? I don't think that's the right word uh, or phrase. And so um, it just. Oh, it just seems like there should be um, tighter relationships. Uh, I feel like maybe you missed what I was trying to say earlier. The reason I brought that brought up the village community mm -hmm. and them worshiping together is that these people see each other day in and day out. Where I guess maybe in our culture here, you know. Um, you know, we can pick and choose where we want to go to church. And um, I mean, I just think about my block alone, you know, those that are Christians, not one of us go to the same church. So right. you're not really doing that living. Um, when I think of Acts again, I think of communities. Um, mm -hmm. And maybe more so, I get because I was talking to Paul this past Sunday about it. And he thinks we're more like we were the church from the beginning, only there was no time to go deeper into it. And I'm thinking, does he think that because we, because of COVID, we're stuck at home and Zooming and, you know, that type, maybe, possibly. possibly, but I really think that's missing because then that goes into church discipline. Really, how do you go and discipline? I mean, there are the foundational from the word, but when there's no relationship, right? How Bingo. do you how do you do that? Bingo. I think and I think you're hitting it hard there, Teresa. You're right on. You're right on it. The relationship is going to allow uh, discipline to happen in healthy, redemptive ways. You all don't know me. 
at all. Uh, you have no clue if I'm living a life that is pleasing to God or a life that is sinful. Uh, now, if we saw each other, like you were saying, Carissa, in a, in a, on a daily basis, it's a little harder to hide your sin um, when, when you see people on a consistent basis. So I do think that discipline has to come out of relationship. And so when you get into larger churches, that's where it can become a challenge if you don't have a healthy system of or a healthy structure for small groups. We call them life groups. But, you know, I'm the discipleship minister uh, at my campus. I, I count on my leaders to help me know, hey, so-and-so is is dealing with this challenge. But even sometimes to come to me or Matt, our campus pastor, and be like, hey, so-and-so, they're living this in their life right now, and it is destroying them and their relationship with the church and with Christ more so. And what can we do to engage them? And, and so oh, I'm blanking on the passage right off the chapter, uh, Matthew chapter, is it 18, I believe, off the top of my head, where it talks about when there is uh, strife and there's someone done someone wrong. But I even think when someone is uh, in process of, of needing to be disciplined, I think we have to apply it there. Hey, I need to go to that person one-on-one. -on -one. I need to approach them and say, hey, I see this. It's, it's not honoring of God. It's not what we're called to live as a follower of Christ. If they repent and receive it and change, then we move on. Uh, thank you there uh, for that passage, Matthew 18, 15 through 20. Uh, and and uh, if, they if they reject it, then I go back with another person and we have the same conversation. Hopefully they hear us, they repent, and we move forward. But at some point, then you have to bring them before the congregation. Now, that can look different, again, based on how your congregation is structured. I've been at a church where we had to enact church discipline. We didn't haul the guy in front of the whole church and lay out all of his dirty deeds and all of his sins. Um, instead, we, we walked with him through, this is what is going to happen, and then we let the church know without just fully exposing everything he was involved in, uh, because to, to have done that would have destroyed the man. And the process, the purpose of discipline is redemption. It's not to punish someone. I mean, punishment happens, but we're doing it for the purpose. We want them to repent and come back into right relationship, right fellowship with God and with the church. Okay. Let's move on from discipline because I'm getting worked up. What else? Okay, I'm not seeing any hands. I'm not seeing anyone move towards the, the unmute button. Yes, sir, I see a hand, there we go. I mean, among our Chinese congregation, we, we have a, a somewhat a big debate <laughs> about how much Church should involve in politics. Oh, uh, it 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 went like really really heated and crazy. We have Republicans, we have Democrats, we have you know we have some extreme Republicans and uh, so extreme it, it is, Democrats. Yeah, extreme Democrats. It is like you know, so it, it is a little. And we're trying to figure out as a congregation, you know, uh, how, how, how to 
how to facilitate the whole process. <laughs> yes. All right. So let's let's go ahead and address the elephant in the room. It's much like a church uh, polity. The Democrats don't have it all right, nor do they have it all wrong. And the Republicans don't have it all right, nor do they have it all wrong. And so I think as, as we consider politics and how the church responds to politics, the first thing that we have to remember is we serve a God who is bigger and better than any government that's out there. And so we have to make sure that first and foremost, that our allegiance is to the kingdom of God, not to the nation of whatever. So a couple of weeks ago, uh, Brentwood on, I think it was November 1, we preached on politics. And as I preached that Sunday, which I was like, why am I preaching this Sunday? This is a crazy thought. Um, I was cursing because Matt was on sabbatical and I got stuck with it. So it was good though. Um, you know, I, 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 at least I had it in my notes. I don't know if it came out of my mouth. I, I wanted people to remember you serve a God uh, who, who is not uh, the nation of America, the country of America. I mean, America is a good country. But God's kingdom is bigger, better, better, much, much greater than America ever will be. The second thing I think we need to remember in terms of politics is God is sovereign. And the people who are serving in government are only serving that way because God has allowed that to happen. And so if, uh, and I'm, I can only use America as my, my basis for this because I've never lived anywhere else. But if, if God is sovereign and he puts someone that I don't necessarily hold to their policies as the president, then I have to trust that God has a purpose for that person. And maybe the purpose is he's trying to draw his people back to him. Maybe his purpose is he's trying to address some social injustices that need to be addressed as in, within our country. Maybe there's a purpose within there that I can't even fathom. That's where my faith has to come in and not allow me to be drawn into fear. Um, now, in terms of making a, a true stand from the pulpit, what should the church do? That one I struggle with a little more. Um, there's, cert there's certain topics though, right? Where, and this is, we used to look to our church on the West Coast and they wouldn't, they refused to take a stand on certain issues mm -hmm. that are completely opposed to scripture, you know? Sure. So, you know, um, even with, you know, younger, younger congregants, you know, we're kind of turning, turning a blind eye to, you know, living together before marriage and, you know, sure. homosexuality. And there's a number of topics that mm -hmm. it, it, you know, it does get a little, it gets, people get really uneasy when the topics come up, but I don't think, I think if we're, we're doing a disservice to our congregations, if we're not giving them, if nothing else, directing them to scripture, so that they can go into prayer and communication with God to see what would God have them do anything about that. So we're yes. not just ignoring it. And, and I will agree with you on that. I think within that, we're talking about cultural engagement, not political engagement necessarily. Uh, I can see where politics may come into that. Um, you know, we don't ever need to be scared to address non-truth or injustice, uh, we definitely need to be willing to stand up and say, here's what God has said through scripture. Um, 
when it comes to standing in the pulpit though and going, hey, we need to embrace or endorse this political party, then I start going, well, wait a minute, we're, we're elevating, are we, are we, could we be elevating that political party or that position above the kingdom of God? And that's where I struggle. Um, so I appreciate Brentwood. We do not get into the po politics game. Uh, we don't, we don't make a, at least I haven't heard anyone make a strong case for this person or that person. Um, and so, you know, it's, uh, I, I feel like I'm dancing all around this topic and I, hopefully I'm hitting a few uh, key points there, but let's, let's, as we talk, consider politics, as we consider engaging people, as we consider ministering to people, uh, let's, let's remember to point them towards God and his kingdom not a political party um, and go from there. Okay. Someone just unmuted. I don't know who though. It, it was me, Dave. Uh, yes. I mean, the church, it's okay for the church and church members to advocate on behalf of things that are biblical. There's nothing yes. wrong with that issues that pertain to the church. I don't, I mean, whatever on what party um, I've got opinions there, but, it, that that's not what we're talking about here. The church right. should be a nonpartisan organization that focuses and advocates on behalf of the kingdom. Yes. And that's okay. That's okay. I totally agree. Totally agree. We need to make stands on, on those, on those issues and we need to be speaking God's truth. Um, what we don't need to be doing is telling people, this is who you need to vote for, or this party is better than that party and causing fistfights in the lobby. Oh, the great that. theologian um, Phil Robertson wrote a book about it called Jesus Politics, and it's really how you – he talks – and I don't think it's spot on. It's not my favorite um, – it's not my favorite uh, view of it, but he talks about how you reconcile um, a certain political candidate and what they – what. Uh, it's basically a balancing act with political candidates and how you choose a political candidate that has some flaws and has some uh, uh, biblical positions. Yeah. And, and what I've discovered, especially in this last election, is that both sides can use scripture to support their, their positions. And so we have to be very careful with how we approach scripture and how we approach politics. Cassandra, I see that your hand's up. Do you, do you want to jump in here with something? Yeah, but I was just waiting for this topic to end because mine is off topic. All right, well, let's move on. So um, you had mentioned that you don't know all the specifics of each kind of denomination, but mm -hmm. I was hoping maybe you could answer this question for me better than Google because um, I've Googled it more than once. But I come from a country that has a fraction of the denominations that America has. Okay. So I'd just like to know what is the difference between a Baptist congregation and a Southern Baptist congregation? Because I thought they were the same and one was just in the South, but apparently that's not the truth. <laughs> it, it is not. Uh, so without knowing, I mean, hang on here just a second. I, I actually wrote this down somewhere. Where is it? So in the United States, there are approximately 56 variations of the Baptist denomination. 56. Every one of these differentiates themselves on some level of theology. Uh, so it's hard for me to say, well, this one is different than this one. 
what I can tell you uh, is that some of the similarities are the congregational polity. Um, I would say that uh, you're going to find some variation on, you know, um, the role of men and women. Uh, you're going to find some that are much more conservative and some that are, uh, I don't want to use the word liberal there, uh, but, you know, some that are, are uh, egalitarian versus complementarian. Uh, that's a good way to put it. You'll find some that are more egalitarian, which means, hey, they can do, men and women can both do exactly the same thing uh, versus complementarian, which says, hey, men are created for certain roles and women are created for certain roles and they complement one another. Uh, so that's going to be one area that I've actually found a lot of difference in, Cassandra, in, in between uh, Baptist denominations is the eternal security of the believer. Can you lose your salvation? Um, Southern Baptists hold that you cannot, that there's the eternal security of the believer, but there are many uh, Baptist de uh, denominations that would say, no, you can lose it. You sin once, you've lost it, you need to go get saved again. And so uh, that seems to be a lot of time the big issue is the eternal security of the believer. And if you want a good book on that, I, I, he's, he's a little older. Charles Stanley wrote a great book called Eternal Security. Uh, if you haven't read that and you want uh, a, a good understanding of that, I would say read his book. <laughs> I already have very strong opinions about election sure. and predestination. Yeah, That's so great. is Brentwood Baptist, I presume they're more on the Baptist side than the Southern Baptist side? In terms of what? Generally. <laughs> no, no. I mean, Brentwood is a Southern Baptist church. Okay. So, so if you, if you want to understand uh, what we hold to the 1963 Baptist faith and message with the, uh, I believe it's the 88 amendment on family is the, uh, if you really want to see where we stand on our uh, theological positions. That's so Southern Baptist is more conservative, mm -hmm, generally. Definitely. definitely are, there, conservative. are there continuationist Southern Baptists, or are they generally cessationist? I, um, I, I can't say with certainty that there are or aren't. I have not come across many that are, but I'm sure there's some out there somewhere. Okay. Is it okay to say you go to a Baptist church, but you're not Baptist? So you froze up there for I mean, for five seconds. Okay to say you go to a Baptist church, but... You're not a Baptist. <laughs> I mean, you, like Baptist and Presbyterian and uh, denominations. There's no denominations in the Bible. So I tend to say right. I go to a Baptist church, but I'm not a Baptist. I'm a Christian. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think I think you're fine to say that. Um, you know, I do I do think when you say, "Hey, I go to a," uh, especially for folks that understand the differences in the denominations, it gives them a little greater, better understanding of well, this is probably where you land on certain theological issues. Okay, so the denominations are different theological issues. Is yes. That yes. Because I just, I mean, you know, I guess it's kind of like as I study God's word and then if I hear anything that red flags me, you know, but. Yeah. Um, and, and let me say a lot, that sounded bad to say, yes, it's theological differences. The primary stuff we agree on, Jesus is the only way to heaven. 
I mean, my, my Presbyterian brothers and sisters, my Methodist brothers and sisters, my Lutheran friends, we all affirm that. It's going to be some of the secondary and tertiary things like, hey, infant baptism, the role of women in the church. That's where you're going to find, um, uh, you know, some differences in how we approach things. And so uh, polity, obviously, like we talked about. So, um, but I'll affirm all of them as followers of Christ. So, you know, I, yeah, so I have no problem with you saying, yeah, I go to a Baptist church, but I'm a, I'm a Christian, um, and I'm good with that. All right, it is coming upon 7.30. I don't know about your brains, but mine is starting to get really foggy. So, let me uh, wrap us up with a word of prayer. Let me also give you my email address. If you have, if you want to continue some conversations, I'm putting it in the uh, chat. If I can type and talk at the same time. Uh, there's my email address. You feel free to reach out to me. Uh, if I can't answer it, I'll point you towards Paul. Um, or if I don't want to answer it, I'll point you towards Paul. Maybe I should say that too. <laughs> so, <laughs> I'll throw it, let Paul have the fun. Um, but yeah, again, it's been good to be with you. Hey, let me uh, real quick. I know Roger talked to you guys about the book. Uh, let me just give a glowing endorsement to Canoeing the Mountains. If That book is so good and really uh, is, is worth the time and energy to read as it uh, really helps us think through how do we do ministry, um, especially now with COVID, but even as we are engaging a culture that is moving away from Christianity as the uh, primary expression of faith. So uh, Todd Bolsinger is the author. The other books he mentioned, man, they're good too. I've read all of them, but Canoeing the Mountain, I'm actually picking it back up over Christmas break and rereading it to remind myself of what was in there. So cool. All right, let me pray for you, and then I'll wrap us out of here. God, you're good to us. In those places where I was confusing and foggy, I pray that you would help us to either uh, explore more and get clarity or help us just to forget about it. And then, God, in the places that challenge us and places that uh, we are kind of going, huh, maybe I need to explore that more. Give us the uh, determination and the uh, gumption to follow through on that. But most importantly, God, help us to understand what it means for us as individuals to be a part of the church, part of the body. And may you find us to be willing and obedient to be a part of the congregation, the local body that you call us to be a part of, and to do the ministry that you're calling us to. So I pray for these men and women. I pray a blessing upon them. And I pray, Father, that you would just shower them with your presence in the days to come. Pray this in your great and holy name. Amen. All right, everybody. Amen. You're the best. I appreciate you. I am ending this. Have a great night. Good night. Amen. Thank you. Thank you. Good night.